I love herons. We do have a lot on the rivers here. Yeah, and I really respond to herons. I love the the boy the, the way that they move very slowly and carefully. They're very patient. They just hang out and they eat a lot. I like that part about them too. I would love to just be patient, moving slowly and eating a lot. It's like it's like the, the animal equivalent of being a late middle-aged man, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there I am. I am the heron. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. Uh, and I'm James Rizika. Uh, and every episode on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two films. We watch a new film and then we watch an old film. And we try and compare A with B. Uh, and this week, uh, we're talking about the new film from Studio Ghibli. Very exciting. Uh, Japanese animation studio who, uh, for my money, have as impressive and beautiful a library as Disney. Uh, and if you know me, you know that's something I would not say lightly. I have a lot of time no. for Disney. Um, the director at the studio, Hayao Miyazaki, he's, he's retired, I think, four times by now. He's 83. Jeez. He keeps coming out of retirement to make another picture. So, uh, so this is his first uh, film for 10 years, The Boy and the Heron. Uh, the first film since The Wind Rises in 2013. Uh, and we're going to be comparing it with uh, what I think, spoiler, is his 1988 masterpiece. It's the, the source of Studio Ghibli's mascot. We're watching My Neighbour Totoro. Um, are these, these films new to you, is that right? They both are new to me, yes. Although I was amazed. Uh, Totoro is 35 years old, 36 years old. Something yeah. Like that. I mean, it feels like an 80s film, so I wasn't surprised when I saw it that it was from 1988, but um, I was surprised that he's been making films that long. But then again, dude's old, right? Yeah, he's, he is old, isn't he? 83. Um, I, th- I think his first um, Studio Ghibli feature was 1984. So apparently it's taken them like 10 years to make this film. Wow. Um, so I think he has been working fairly consistently on it yeah. since the wind rises. Yeah. Um, and it's cost something like $160 million, wow. I think, or something like that. Did I read? I think you know, they spent an enormous amount of money on it. And allegedly somewhat autobiographical, I guess. Is that correct? Yes. Oh. Well, perhaps we'll, we'll kind of talk about that yeah. after we've talked about the film a bit. Because, yeah, because, yeah I think it is very autobiographical um well but you know we'll we'll kind of chime in with some little autobiographical details um do you want to start by telling us the story so this is uh as as you said directed by Hayao Miyazaki um he wrote it and I'm really depending on you to tell us how much is based on his life uh the cast features some names you know for sure I mean I watched the English version did you watch it in English or could you watch it in Japanese with subtitles? I think that might have made it better yep, for me. That yep. was one reason I had a little difficulty uh, getting engaged with it. Was I think the ah. the Christian yeah the Christian Bale voice in particular? We'll talk about that probably. But um, you saw it in English as well, then or, we did see it in English. I think okay. it's the only version available. I don't think there is a Japanese subtitled version it that's looked, been in the in the cinemas here. Probably not. Well, in IMDb, if you look it up, there is um, a, a fully Japanese voiced production but it did, didn't make it over here because we don't like reading in this country hell no <laughs> luca padavan christian bale florence Pugh, uh dave bautista willem dafoe robert pattinson it's interesting because i don't you know after the fact i thought okay i guess that's 
who those people were, but I don't focus too much on on the the theme behind the characters and and who's actually reading what part. So um, those are the actors and actresses there. I mean, if you put those people in a live action film, that's yeah. two hundred million dollars right there. Isn't yeah, it? it's big money, but it's it's <laughs> interesting to see. Yeah, they're coming in after the fact and sort of uh, just voicing the characters. I wonder how much they cost there. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's start talking about the the film. Um, I'm just going to sort of focus on setting it up, and then we'll we'll spoil it with the bell, and then we'll come back and spoil it even more. So. <laughs> Opens, uh, feels like it's World War II uh, in Tokyo, and a hospital's being bombed, and where this is where Mahito's, uh, the, the young uh, male protagonist, probably about 10 years old or something like that, just a young, right, yeah. young man. Um, his mother is convalescing there, I guess. Uh, he's unable to get to her in time as she passes away without really saying goodbye. Um, her hospital and lots of Tokyo have been bombed. Hospital's on fire. Um, there's some fantastic imagery where the, the people look like ghosts. Everyone other than Mahito, yeah. he's going through the streets, they already look like ghosts, and these are the living, you know. Uh, it's a very eerie scene, which really evokes um, just some of the horrible realities of World War II and the atrocities that happened to the Japanese at that time. Uh, thereafter, Mahito and his father, which is Shoichi. You're better with these names. Oh, quite possibly. I didn't. I didn't write him on his on my list, but yeah, I believe that. That's Shoichi, and I think that's Christian Bale's character. And to me, his accent was very strange. It sounded like a, <laughs> a rough around the edges Boston accent for, a, 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 I guess, a, to- a Tokyo or Japanese businessman. Um, they moved to the country estate um, uh, that seems to be part of his uh, his mother's family. Um, and he's got an airplane glass factory. I think that's what it was. They were sort of doing glass work for planes or something. And lo and behold, uh, Mahito will find that he has a new and pregnant stepmother there uh, <laughs> who is apparently his aunt. Um, yeah. And she greets them. And when they arrive, uh, as I said, she's pregnant. She lives in this house that's occupied with this elderly posse of relatives and servants, a group of maybe six very old women. Uh, um, I think uh, Miyazaki has something for old people. He's not, he doesn't treat the, the, the aged with much uh, respect in terms of their looks. They always seem very old and very withered. So imagine a, a group of six ancient women running around the house, uh, sort of helping and serving on, on, on Mihito. Um, the estate itself is in a state of deterioration, especially this off-limits stone castle-like outbuilding that a great uncle created um, years ago and where currently a heron nests. Mm. Uh, but this is no ordinary heron. Uh, the heron and a number of other animals, including uh, very aggressive fish and frogs uh, who envelope and hug, nearly molesting Mojito. Um, they promise to help him find his mother, who is still very much alive. Um, but when his stepmother disappears during a, an illness, Mojito sets out to find his mother. But which mother will he find? Ah. I want to set it up like that with a question. Yeah. So that's kind of that's almost like like the first end of the first act, I suppose. That's what I kind of I'm trying to do that. I think I'm copying you. I think that's kind of what you do. You usually throw in a few more things um, after that, but you do it so expertly that I wanted to 
try and reduce it to one act, and then we can spoil Bell, and then we can really start spoiling it. <laughs> but, but, oh, excuse me. Before we spoil, yeah. Um, yeah, there are probably you know a couple of things worth mentioning for people who want to pause the pod before they see the actual film. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you. I thought this was a really this is a beautiful film. It's beautifully it's hand drawn animation. So I, yeah, it's beautifully uh, rendered. It's filled with striking images. I think you're never waiting very long for a beautiful moment in this film, you know, or like an unexpected vista or like a a perfectly observed, captured little bit of animated movement. You know, it's, I think it's a sumptuous uh, film, a feast for the eyes, a lesser critic might say. Ooh, um, we don't have lesser critics on this podcast. <laughs> but... Why would we quote them? I tell you what I wrote here, which is, um, I wrote, this is a, this film is a bit like a greatest hits of Studio Ghibli. Ah. Uh, mm. And you know, so we have seen almost all of them. And this, this um, movie comes across as a kind of a greatest hits of the, like the themes and the moments. Yeah. Um, and I, I put this in my notes and I was quite pleased with this, but like a band's greatest hits compilation, it doesn't quite hang together the way that the original albums did. Uh, which means basically I, I really enjoyed this film, but it was a bit bitty. Bit bitty, yeah. Um, I th- for my money, you're being very generous. I would, I think that's a <laughs> euphemism for incoherent, isn't it? <laughs> I found it to be a little bit incoherent, especially after, I mean, like the setup, that first act is what I understood. I stop mm. understanding not at long after the first act. So for me, it was, yeah, I, I, it, that makes sense. Your Your assessment makes sense to me because I did find it, Hard to follow, especially once they get into this other world and all that that we'll talk about. But um, yeah, for me, it wasn't, yeah, it, it doesn't hang together, but in a way that it's not all great stuff, but it just doesn't work because it's all great stuff. It's more that it just, it never really matches up one thing to the next. So if, to call it bitty, I think you're meaning like small bits that don't really kind yeah. of join up. Yeah, yeah. I think that's too. I mean, it's it, it's kind of dream logic, I sort of thought it was. It's like it's exactly what it is, yeah. It's kind of, you know, one thing becomes another, and then it becomes another thing. And, um, yeah, uh, like nothing, it doesn't quite tie together as a whole. And I must say, I mean, I, I got, did get to the end of the film uh, and, you know, a little bit like waking up from a dream. I exited the cinema and mm-hmm. I found it quite difficult to remember what had happened yeah. and what order it had all happened in. Yeah. You know, in just the same way that a dream gradually fades away over breakfast. Yeah. You know, it has that kind of elusive feeling. Yeah. Um, I do wonder whether, you know, quite early on in the film, I mean, it, you know, it begins as a dream, doesn't it? We're in that very, very opening image. The first thing you see is this raid on Tokyo. Yeah. Yep. And Mojito is asleep. Um, very annoying that he's called Mojito because whenever I type any notes, yeah. it's autocorrected to the name of that Mexican drink. And, but Well, it's a, cube, it's a Cuban drink and it made me thirsty. <laughs> it's a Cuban drink. Oh, my Every God. Every time I got autocorrected, I was like, I do have <laughs> rum. I've got lime. <laughs> don't really have the tonic water, and I definitely don't have fresh mint. Uh, that same same thing happened to me. And I, I, yeah, but you're right about the dreams. I mean, it's, it starts with him asleep in bed, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. And there's a few times when he goes to sleep, and he even gets a head injury. Yep. And I feel like there are all these points yes. that make you think, oh, is the rest of the film like a hallucination or a dream? You, you could interpret it as being an, you know, just a great big long dream sequence I, following one of these at, um, moments when he gets into bed. That's definitely what it feels like, and... Um, my sister always says, you know, and I agree with her, she just never wants to hear about other people's dreams. It's just just not that interesting. So to spend $120 million to put it on screen just seems a little (laughs) self-indulgent. 
And I, I do get, it's just hard to communicate dreams. And if, if it's something that's very individual, and, and we talked about this as being sort of a personal story, and I suspect the personal story stuff comes around the mother um, and some of the illness or some of the, the changes of the stepmother in his life, um, because the rest of it I couldn't be autobiographical. Some of the stuff that happens, like talking to a heron who's got a human head coming out of his mouth. <laughs> mm, unlikely Mr. Uh, Miyazaki. But... Um, yeah, I think other people's dreams are hard to communicate. They're hard to really engage with. And for me, it was just hard to follow. So I, I like your your analysis of it being sort of a, a dreamscape movie. Um, I will remind you that when we were both at film school together, one of the precepts of the course was that f- films are dreams. They are, yeah. I remember being told that many, <laughs> many times. <laughs> and maybe that's why I can remember so little of what I learned in film school. It just evaporated away as I woke. Yeah. For me, what I took away from that is that they're like collective dreams. You're sitting in the dark, you're falling asleep mm. very often. Um, you're watching something together. And I think there's a difference between taking an individual dream and trying to turn it into a collective dream after spending a lot of money on it or um, just experiencing a collective dream um, that's not designed as a dream. This def- This is definitely like in the film, as you said, it's sort of dreams inside of dreams. And he's taking a dream and putting it in the cinema, I think. So there's a little, I think there's a little subtle, uh, some nuance there. Uh, that explains what how films are like dreams. Ah, uh, nuance. Yeah, that's that's what I always miss. Mm. Nuance. Should we? Well, should we ring the spoiler bell at least? Please. Um, yeah. And then spoil the hell out of these dreams. <laughs> I'm going to ring it now. Okay. Ruining people's dreams. That's what we do here at the Two Real Cinema Club. <laughs> Dream wreckers. So, um, well, so. Here's a spoiler. It turns out the whole world is a block puzzle, eh? Didn't see that coming. Is that Jenga? I thought that was Jenga. I don't know much about the board games. Yeah. It's Jenga. It's a 13-piece Jenga set, basically. That's, <laughs> that's our existence. I did the maths on this. So so at the end of the kind of the big, long dream sequence, Mojita um, finds out what, you know, what the real the real story is behind this kind of curious dream world that he enters. And it's all been... You know, uh, uh, kind of dreamt up by his great uncle who was moving these 13 block puzzle pieces around yeah. to try and create a new world. It's all kind of very dreamlike. I did the maths. 13 blocks gives you 8,000 possible combinations. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's it. So we can look forward to 7,999 sequels to The Boy and the Heron coming out <laughs> next year. On a, on a universal or a planetary level, I love that idea because the Earth has changed so much in four billion years, and it's it's been you know both a very welcoming environment as well as a very hostile environment. So I, li- I like some of the ideas here. There's some fantastic stuff, and there's that hovering rock or stone that has these magical powers too. But by that point, I was so lost that I could only grab a little bit here and there, and 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 have fun with some of the ideas without really putting them all together. As the film becomes wackier and wackier, there are many more you know, great moments that I really enjoyed and that I really remember, though I don't think I could tell you quite what order they mm-hmm. they come. There is a relatively early moment, on uh, which you kind of um, uh, mentioned earlier on, when uh, Mojito, he kind of first encounters the heron and it's beckoning him to join him. And he's... Yeah. You know, gradually overpowered by all these frogs crawling over him. Yeah. It's an amazing image. Yeah. And they're only kind of dispelled when the pregnant um, stepmother comes running out of the house with a bow and arrow. Uh, and uh, I, that's one of the most memorable moments of the film because uh, that really won me over to her character, who before that seems a little bit kind of cold and yeah. uh, not entirely sympathetic. But this kind of you know badass pregnant woman coming out with a yeah. bow and arrow, I kind of really enjoyed that. I thought that was a you know a good turning point for the beginning of the adventure. Yeah, um, you you were kind of saying um, we were kind of discuss how much the film is autobiographical. Yeah, yes, apparently. Um, 
Miyazaki's father uh, did own a factory which produced uh, uh, aeroplane parts. Okay. His mother was in the hospital a lot, I think, when he was young and then eventually died when he was young. You know, they did move out to the country. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, they did have money and lived in quite a nice place. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of those elements are, you know, um, fairly closely modelled on his on his life. And kind of the main takeaway idea, kind of the, the kernel of the film I came away with basically was that uh, this bird, this heron, the titular heron of the film is grief, I think. Is that right? The bird is grief? That uh, you know, he's he's kind of initially haunted by it, you know, and then he kind of learns to defeat it, uh, and kind of turn that energy into something positive. He's kind of you know he's able to sort of not only defeat grief but also kind of turn grief into a kind of ally. I think that's sort of how the story of the film works, and I think that's the level that it's intended to be interpreted at. But I could be wrong. I hope you're not, because that's much more than I have. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. That's good. I want to hear more because I thought it was about frogs almost swallowing a human being alive. <laughs> That's definitely happening too. I mean, it's it's interesting that there is this, he's very often just on the edge of sort of uh, dying himself as well, I think. And that makes sense that he's been haunted by his mother's death and these sort of thoughts come up. Um, yeah, the, the frogs are all over him at one point. Um, there are various creatures that are sort of like outnumbering and we're talking to him and the fish, right? Aren't the fish in the river and they're dancing in front of him? And Yeah. Um, and then later on, there's a whole army of parakeets, isn't there? Like yeah. this enormous parakeet empire. That's which... right. Yeah, the parakeet. Oh, God, the parakeets. Yeah, yeah. And then um, just, yeah, he just seems to be very often in peril. Um, so I think that's probably a good point is that he's so probably obsessed as death with death as a kid, you know, his age had lost his mother probably would be. So grief makes sense. The heron is a strange, strange character because he's also a trickster, right? Yes. He brings him into the castle. I'm going to show you your mother. Your mother melts. Well, she's liquid. She just uh, disappears before he can even really interact with her. And then the, the heron, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, it's there's a human form inside the heron. So you feel like this this is this is no ordinary heron, obviously. Um but there's something human about this heron to the point where, what is it? It's like it's, the mouth is falling apart and then this human head, very baldish. Let's think uh, Bob Hoskins, maybe someone like that, right? <laughs> Balding, short, stout. Paul Giamatti would have been great as the heron too. I think. Yeah, it, um, it's Paul Giamatti in a bird suit. Yeah, yes. so it's like this little human form coming out of the bird suit as well. So it's, he could relate to grief if we're going to go with the grief thing. Um, you could relate to it because it was it was personified. It was sort of became um, anthropomorphized, I guess. But then there's a whole bunch of other threads inside the film as well, which you know sort of touched upon but never really quite explored properly. So um, when uh, Mojito gets kind of sucked into this strange sort of subterranean dream world, mm-hmm. uh, he enters by sinking, literally sinking through the floor of yeah. the magical tower in the back garden. But he takes along a servant woman with him. And the servant woman is kind of transformed into this tiny doll. But at the same time, he also meets... Um, like you know, a young, really dynamic fisherwoman who has the same name same as the name. servant woman, and so she's yeah. probably like you know an alternative version of this same woman. Yeah, and yet that's never kind of really very deeply explored. You know, they they catch this enormous fish together and gut it, and yeah. then they have to sort of feed it to these tiny little floating sort of 
um, they're like sort of potatoes that float in the sky. I mean, they just there's a whole bunch of you know, <laughs> kind of crazy, crazy images that just kind of follow one another, and a lot of them not really very deeply explored. You know, we we glance at them and then move on, and they're not entirely tied up. Come the end, no. you know, the dynamic fisherwoman she does come back very briefly at the end. Yeah, you know the. The, the little sort of the floating potatoes. I'm not sure what comes of them. They do look like they would make fun, um, you know, fun soft toys that you could sell in the Studio Ghibli shop. But yeah. none of it is quite tied together. You know, the parakeets are a relatively late entry in the story. You know, and then they end up kind of being some kind of malign army with kind of these cultish signs that they're all carrying. It's a whole strange kind of melange of images. Yeah. And then, and the end of the film is very abrupt, I think, isn't it? Super it's abrupt. A, yeah, yeah. It just suddenly ends. It suddenly ends. Yeah, he goes back to, they move back to Tokyo. He says, two years later, we moved back to Tokyo. And then, bam, a very dull set of credits on a blue screen with a, another strange song ends mm. the film. Um, yeah, it's very abrupt. We just talked about endings, or maybe we're going to be talking about endings soon. And this is not a great ending for... A film that's supposed to be so monumental, I guess, and so personal. It feels like there should be a, a better, more personal ending because you just you just feel kind of left. It's just like the the filmmaker just left you at one point. The closing image, I think, is an interesting choice for uh, for a filmmaker of eighty three years. Insofar as you know, um, Mahito kind of packs up his things yep. and he uh, leaves his you know, little bedroom that he's occupied in this sort of big country house. Yeah. And uh, he walks off screen and we just, we're just left with a view of an empty room. Yep. You know, and it feels a little bit like um, Miyazaki's own kiss off to the film industry insofar as yeah. you know, he's made his final statement, told his autobiographical story, and now he's going to exit stage left. Yeah. And, um, you know, and just leave an empty stage behind. I, I think the thing I took from that was that um, maybe that's where the whole story happened. I mean, mm. he has, um, he's taken a stone or something like that and bludgeoned himself because he doesn't want to go to school because he was being bullied. And so I, I feel like that part was real life. And then I feel like um, almost as if everything that happens thereafter, I mean, there might be a few sort of more real moments, let's say, but I think a lot of that was dreaming. And some of it was directly, you'd see him dreaming and all of a sudden we'd have a scene that seemed very dreamlike. Yeah. So I felt like that that's where the that's where the film takes place is in that room and now he's leaving that room and so the the film is basically over and his life is obviously going to change and but to just stick it on and say oh two years later we moved to Tokyo seems like a, a bit of a cop out. It seems like there could be something better there. Um but I think that when you were talking about Kiriko which is the character who he it's the old woman who goes along on the journey into the the netherworld, right, yes. the underworld, and then she becomes a statue, and then she becomes this fisher person. Um, that seemed to me like a very clear connection. You know how we take things from real life and they just pop up in our dreams immediately. It's almost you ah. know, right on the nose. You know, um, that seemed like exactly what he was doing. He was taking material from his life, being cared for by all these women, and then taking it into a dream and just spinning a character out of um, a real life character. So that made sense to me. Um, a lot of the other things don't make sense. The parakeets, to me, there was like a clear Mussolini leader parrot. Ah, right, yes. So then I thought, okay, because this World War II stuff is sort of creeping back in because the, the parrots are all colorful, but they're just repeating whatever their leader says, and they have this incredible worship for this one individual big, big strong parrot. Um, and then that parrot is sort of dictating, or he's trying to work with the, the, the great uncle who's sort of the architect in the maze of all of this, and... Um, I felt like that was World War II stuff getting in there, creeping uh, in there. Yep, yep. 
But I, Ed, you're you're absolutely right. I think there's just a lot of stuff, and it doesn't all really connect that well together. I, I loved the little potato ghost babies. I mean, I thought that was <laughs> very interesting. And that was one of the things that really made me think, because at one point they have to – Kiriko and, and – um, Mojita, Mahito, have to uh, feed the little ghost babies so that they can go on this journey. Um, so they're eating this fish, and then they sort of get inflated enough, I guess. They can self-inflate. <laughs> <laughs> they self-inflate, they go into the sky, and they spin into this beautiful, almost like DNA spiral. But then the pelicans come along and start eating them <laughs> eat up them. one by one. So it's this lesson of life, I think. Like, there is a cycle of life. Um, and that all these beings are, it almost, you almost get the sensation that they're going to go become stars or something like that, or they're going to go out into the universe and be living beings as, elsewhere. Um, so I, there was a really neat message there, but it was lost. I mean, it wasn't lost on me, I guess, but I mean, I think it would probably be, it's lost in the story. Let's say it just yeah. doesn't really, doesn't fit into the story too, too well. And sometimes you feel like he's doing a real kid's film. And sometimes you feel like he's doing something super cerebral for some sort of intellectual group or gang of philosophers or something like that. And it's, you know, a lot of animations do try and hit both an adult audience and a a children's audience, but this is two totally different planes. It's almost like the thing takes place in two different universes. I wonder whether there's a a temptation, if you've been working on a film for 10 years and you kind of think, well, if I make another film that takes me another 10 years, I'll be 93 by then. I better put everything I've got into this one. (laughs) So it's just kind of, yeah, every time you have an idea, tip it in. We'll have that too. We'll have that as well. Tip it in. Go on. Mix it all together. Um, So you end up with this kind of big, big, heavy soup with every ingredient in it. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, and every mouthful is sparkling and fascinating, but oh my goodness, it's a lot to eat. Yeah. Yeah, I, but there, as you said at the outset, there there's some fantastic filmmaking. It feels very film-like, not just an animation. It feels very film-like at times. And we've really, in the last few months, I think we've really looked at set design um, pretty carefully in terms of like when we did um, Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, mm. the Killers of the Flower Moon, especially. And you know, like the wallpaper in this film is fantastic. The, the <laughs> deteriorating, rotting wood of parts of the house is fantastic. So there's just this texture to it that is just next level. Um, so I, I would say that you're seeing a filmmaker at his superpowers in terms of like the details and the way the you know I, I won't say camera moves, but that's exactly what, what it does. Is like the camera moving through um, some of the animation backgrounds is fantastic and and. There, you know, you can see, you can see the visual storytelling. It doesn't really add, all add up, but it's it's beautifully done. You can imagine this as a a, 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 a film, you know, shot on film and um, with real live actors. You know, like in a live action film, you could you can sort of see that in places. Uh, Disney have a, a trend at the moment of remaking their animated classics as live action yeah, films. That's right. I wonder whether you know once all the current um, top people in Studio Ghibli. Uh, retire or pass on yeah. they'll have a fantastic library there that yes. i wonder whether somebody will then try and remake as uh, uh in real life so maybe you will get your well, i don't know whether it's wish or nightmare or i don't know there's one other little detail i want to yeah. i do want to kind of talk about which is just me admitting how stupid i was watching the film <laughs> insofar as you know i sort of more or less understood that um that natsuko the the stepmother was the sister of Mojito's mother. So I kind of got that. But what I didn't get until the very, very end of the film, which was that the the fire girl of his own age, Mm -hmm. that he meets this kind of feisty girl, 
she's a fire spirit and she's going to help him find his his stepmother. Yeah. And I didn't realise until the very last moment of the film, really, that, oh, right, that is his mother. That's his mother. As a girl. Yep. And I wonder whether how early on did you realise what was going on there? Because I must say, I was uh, far too stupid and had to have it really spelled out to me before I got that. I probably got it about the same time you did. Oh, you're being charitable, I can tell, but thank you. No, well, because she come, the first time we see her, oh, she's uh, firebombing the pelicans who are eating the uh, potato puff people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the first time we see her. And, you know, it's not a major character. We're not guaranteed that she's going to come back or anything like that. We just see her do this sort of brave and admirable thing and... And then he he notices her, and then she they get sort of into this like castle structure with all the doors, and that's where they start sort of experiencing what might be his psyche or the world together. Um, it it occurred to me a little bit, and then you know, in in working backwards, I realized okay, it, her job was basically to introduce him to his next mother, to sort of bring him, in, which is her sister, um, right? Because the whole idea is we're going to take you to your mother. She's very much alive. And it's sort of like about changing his perspective. Okay, maybe she's not an awful stepmother. Maybe she can be my next mother figure, and she is my mother's sister. So she's technically my aunt, now my mother. It gets confusing, of course, but um, that seems to be like the the purpose of the journey is for him to recognize uh, Nasuko as his, his new mother, and his old mother's going to introduce that idea to him and kind of reintroduce the aunt to him as the mother. It's, it's a little complicated, but I think that's, I think that's what the purpose was. Cause that's, if it's the journey, when you set on a journey like this, they say, Hey, we're going to show you your mother. Mm. So that's the end goal. You see all these other things are splitting fish open and feeding uh, potato puff kids <laughs> and all that. But ultimately the goal is you're going to see your mother and it's not the mother that he thinks it's going to be, but it is the mother who probably, you know, is with him for, 50 60 years i don't know but the, probably the you know the majority of his life he remembers his birth mother a little bit but it's his stepmother who was going to be in his life for a long time so i think that's it and there's a lot of probably a lot of torture in their relationship and it might have been difficult to come to accept that but maybe this film is showing how it was difficult yeah that's a that's a really <laughs> nice interpretation actually yeah so you lied earlier on you kind of said that you didn't get much out of it and you know what you've cut straight to the core that is actually a really beautiful way of looking at the film and i think you're yeah you're exactly right yeah your mother is alive it's not the mother that you think yeah of yeah that is that is sweet i might have to watch this film again now that i've spoken to somebody who knows what it's actually about Oof. well uh- <laughs> Honestly, I didn't know that it was about that at all until you started talking. I get a lot. I get just as much as our listeners out of this uh, these podcasts. So um, literally, it really kind of it comes to me much later. You have to think about it quite a bit. And I'm going to say I don't need to see the film again to figure that out. <laughs> it's a, it's a, we should let the, 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 the listeners know it's two hours and two minutes or something. That's just a little bit over two hours. Yeah, it probably is slightly too long. Yeah, I think compared to Totoro, which is you know, an hour and 30 and and. Tighter in a sense, I think. Um, two hours for an animated film. Again, I guess this is an epic. This is a big work for him and his final work and all that, or his next final work. I'm sure he's going to have another final work, but um, <laughs> probably a little long, longish, especially because I did start to turn off a little bit. I was just overwhelmed with information. I was trying to make sense of things that you can't really make sense of. And I think that made the last half hour really difficult for me. Ah, uh, yeah, it's too much. Um, well, there's. One problem when you put a lot of material in a film, which is that by the time you start gathering more and more material, maybe mm-hmm. sometimes if you take a step back, you might realise that a couple of the things you've put in were cliches and not quite as clever as you thought they were when you first wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I feel a bit bad about this because I think you know the Studio Ghibli films generally are consistent and fantastic, but I'm still going to call the Cliché Squad. Cliché Squad. I can't fault you. I can't fault you. I, I mean, my attitude to this is that, so, um, Hayao Miyazaki, he's like, you know, like, you know, a proper auteur. He's, yeah. he's really stamped his identity on Jap- Japanese animated uh, cinema. But I feel like at this stage now, his movies could basically come with a bingo card. You know, mm. you could tick yeah. off, yep. you know, the things that appear. And, you know, and this film would fill the whole bingo card. Basically, this film features all of um, Hayao Miyazaki's kind of personal obsessions and recurring themes. So I did, I started a little list on the side of my notebook here and I quickly, you know, quickly got halfway down the page. Yeah. Um, you know, only a few minutes into the film. So I like, you know, there is a mother in hospital. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a move to the country, both of which we will see in Totoro. Yep. There is a feisty girl, like in Spirited Away or Kiki's Delivery Service. Yep. There's aeroplane engineering, yeah. like we see in Porco Rosso and The Wind Rises. Wow. There is a bow and arrow, which we see in Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these kind of themes. You know, a door is a portal to other worlds, yeah. which, which we see in Howl's Moving Castle. You know, comical old ladies, you see that in all the films. Yeah. Frogs settling into a new class at school. A mythical animal with oh, wow. strangely human teeth. Oh, I mean, you know, it's, it's endless. Yeah. You know, these these are the things that, that he is interested in. He puts them in every film. They're in this film. They're, yeah. I, they're not really cliches. You know, the, the cliche squad haven't got a leg to stand on here. They're not cliches. They are what I wrote in my notes here. They're not cliches. They are signatures. There you go. They are brush strokes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are the elements. These are like the 13 geometric blocks. Yeah. You know, and he is able to build 8,000 films out of those yeah. 13 blocks. And, and here is another one. So, you know, I think we're just enjoying those same geometric blocks. Yeah, yeah. They're repetitions from one film to the next. And I've, you know, seen these two films together. I noticed so many of those. Um, mm. There's also neighbors who are clues to other worlds or keys to other worlds. It seems like there's ah. always some old lady who comes up. Oh, yeah, I used to live here. Or, oh, I can show you this new world. <laughs> um those, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, does that differ from a cliche? It's like it's like a personal cliche almost, right? Because it's it's within his body of work. It sort of repeats to the point where it becomes cliche in the Miyazaki world. Maybe that's what yeah. If it's, it is. if it's yeah, so if it's you know, if it's your own personal cliche, then you can call it a theme, can't yeah. you? I suppose. Yep, a motif. A motif. There you go. Um, for me, the, the one that always just hurts me a little bit is. Um, the the architect setting up this confusing world that no one understands and there aren't really <laughs> rules for the viewer to follow and kind of ultimately disappoints everyone. So it's I call it you know it's 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 kind of like Deus ex machina because you get this explanation at the end of what's really been going on, but it's also I don't know if this exists Deus in machina because it happens Ooh. in the film and it's actually kind of the whole basis of the film. So for me that. That's just a major cliche. We've seen it in things like The Matrix and again and again, really. But um, for me, it's like you're basing a whole film on something that is kind of disappointing because it's just God is in the works ultimately. You don't have to set things up logically where things make sense in terms of the story order and the scenes don't hang together because it's just, oh, there's this master architect who's designed everything. You can't really understand it. I mean, he he looks very much like the kind of the sort of the Western ideal of God as well, isn't he? He's a big, you know, he's a big, big old man with you know, messy gray hair yep. who probably sits on a cloud when he has the spare time to do so. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, that's just what he looks like. 
So for me, that's I think that's for me that's a more harmful cliche in the sense that it's not a motif, it's not a theme, it's not something that yeah. you know, he's, it's a brushstroke unique to him. It's more that it's kind of this story crutch, I guess. And that, that's something that we should look at sometimes is architects in films, yeah. because yeah, mm. architects are, you know commonly appear in films, yeah. But the architects that you see in films are never people who are worrying about you know how they're going to fit the pipes in to get the toilet there, mm. or you know how how thick do we need to make these walls so they can hold the hold the ceiling up. Yeah. Um, I, and I suspect that you know a real architect probably gets just as annoyed at their <laughs> screen counterparts as as we do at doctors and teachers. Yes. Well, <laughs> okay. Let's should we have should we have a little break? Uh, we'll kind of we'll return from the dream world and and stretch our legs for a minute, and then when we come back, we'll kind of plunge back into the into the kind of the animated universe, and we'll talk about my neighbor Totoro. Well, we're a little way into a new year, and maybe you've bought a new TV. Maybe it's an OLED, or a QLED, or a MicroLED, or 55 inches, or 65 inches, or 75 inches. It's bright, and it's sparkly, and it's vivid, but there's one thing that hasn't changed. Your remote. For all the new technology in your TV, your remote is still the same cheap Atari controller-looking plastic stick it's always been. But not anymore, thanks to the two-reel cinema club, Remotatron, our very own custom remote control that brings TV into the 21st century with a host of new buttons. Sick of all that talking? Too much dialogue on your movie or TV show? Well, one press of the Christopher Nolan button makes the music deafeningly loud, (laughs) drowning out most of the words. Is your TV programme too short? Just press the Netflix Arise button and instantly your television will drag the story out to 10 hours with endless repetition of the same clips and story strands that go nowhere before suddenly cancelling the show completely just as it's getting good. (laughs) Do you like ads? Well, click the YouTube button and you can get everything on your TV interrupted by ads every two to four minutes. Even the ads will be interrupted by ads. (laughs) The Scorsese button will let you watch characters get shot at point blank range every six minutes, no matter what the show is. The Wes Anderson button will make everything on screen look like a twee model. And if you want to look sort of a bit feminist and progressive while not really thinking too hard about all the details... The Barbie button is the one for you. <laughs> the Two Real Cinema Club Remotatron. The world of Hollywood is just a click away. Awesome. That's exactly what I need. <laughs> exactly what we bloody don't need. And we are back, uh, back to talk about. Now, I've got a, a question here. Mm. Um, we are going to talk about the 1988 Studio Ghibli film, also directed by Hayao Miyazaki. And I am going to call this film My Neighbor Totoro. But I'm not sure that's quite right. Are you, are you saying Totoro? Are you saying Totoro? I don't know much about Japanese, but I, I don't think there's um, 
there aren't accents, right? Ah, I so it should be my name, Totoro. Yeah, Totoro. Yeah, maybe it's Totoro. I think yeah, you, I don't you know, like we put a lot of emphasis on certain syllables, and I don't think the Japanese do that. So it's Totoro, Totoro. What did you say? You said Totoro, right? Totoro, because I think the the English language version that I watched yeah. with an uh, with a, a broadly uh, American cast dubbing yeah. the voices, they all say Totoro. Totoro, yeah. Um, but that might not be correct. My uh, brother's wife, who is Japanese, yeah. often complains that um, non Japanese speakers think they are so cool when they try to speak Japanese yeah. by saying everything in a kind of monotone, and she says, "No, Japanese people don't talk like oh. that at all. We put lots of expression in. What oh. are you doing?" Um, hmm. So uh, I, I can not claim to be an expert. I'm okay. going to stick with Totoro because yeah, it's, yeah. it's what we all say it's in our easy. house. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so 1988, um, this is the film uh, which gave rise to um, Studio Ghibli's mascot. Uh, you can buy a Totoro in all shapes and sizes uh, for your soft toy collection. Um, and you know, probably their most recognisable character, maybe their most recognisable film. Um, the version that's on Netflix internationally uh, has got another stellar voice cast. Dakota Fanning and Elle Fanning yeah. play the, the sisters. God. Um, would you be interested to know why I chose this film? I would. I would. Yeah, I'm supposed to ask that perhaps. But uh, <laughs> I like the fact that you made it a yes, no for me. Yes. <laughs> Do you have any other questions for me, Counselor? Basically, a new, a new Miyazaki film is a rarity. I mean, so we've had the first one for 10 years yeah. uh, just now. And I personally, I think this is his finest picture. Um, and I think it's worth noting that long-term listeners will remember that uh, My Neighbour Totoro uh, featured in our best films under 90 minutes popcorn counter. Oh. So we have already talked about this film a little bit. Ah. Uh, this, so this interestingly, so this was the third proper Studio Ghibli film. So yeah. they made Norska Valley of the Wind first in 1984, Castle in the Sky mm. in 1986. And they were both kind of big, fantastical science fiction films. They had kind of robots and oh, yeah. air battles and these kind of huge events. And it was all big, big scale sci-fi. And um, when they came to make this film, it was they found it hard to get backing to make something which was kind of smaller or more personal. Yeah. Uh, so the only way they were able to, to secure funding uh, for my neighbour to- Totoro, Totoro, I'm already getting it wrong. Can't believe it. <laughs> what, what hope for the future? Can't get it right already. Um, was by pairing this project by uh, combining it into a double bill. So they made Grave of the Fireflies uh-huh. and My Neighbor Totoro back to back, and in Japan at least they were released as a double bill. Grave of the Fireflies is the only Studio Ghibli film I haven't seen. Oh. All I know about it is that it is apparently utterly heartbreaking, oh, no. uh, which means that there's there's kind of never a day when I feel entirely comfortable. Sitting down to watch it, mm. I know it kind of feel. Oh yes, well, I want to have my heart broken today, uh, so I haven't seen it. And strangely, also, it is not on Netflix. And I think there is some kind of international rights issue, which means that um, uh, it's not available to see. Mm. That's not good. That's not good. They'll have, someone will someone will buy it up. People need properties now. People there is there is an audience for it. So, well, as as is traditional, shall I tell you the story? You shall. <laughs> So, My Neighbor Totoro, uh, it's an animated Japanese family film uh, set in post-war Japan. I think the 1950s or maybe the 1960s. Did you get that kind of feeling? That's the vibe, isn't it, I think? Yeah, the dad driving, loading up the van and uh, moving them out to the country. Yeah, it felt like, uh, yeah, 60s, 70s maybe at the latest. 
Um, so it's the Kusakabe family. Uh, they're moving out to the country. The father, Tatsuo, and his daughter, Satsuki, who's about 10, and Mei, who I read apparently is four. Um, I think she's a pretty young four if she is four. She looks to me more like she's you know a three-year-old. She's very little. So uh, they move into a run-down, dusty, rickety old house uh, that might even possibly be haunted, filled with soot sprites, dominated by an enormous camphor tree in the back garden. Mm. Um, and this whole adventure of moving to the country is tremendously exciting for these two young girls, and it distracts them uh, from their own worries about their hospitalised mother, uh, Yasuko, um, who I reckon she is in a sanitarium recovering from TB. Um, oh, Okay. I think in the 50s, yeah. this was you know, pretty much the only treatment really available for TB. People had this notion that you had to go somewhere and rest and get a lot of fresh air. And that was you know, the only way that people recovered. I think there is a chance maybe that um, for pulmonary TB, you might have a pneumonectomy. You might have a bit of your lung Oof. surgically removed. Okay. Um, but otherwise, the, the pharmaceutical treatments weren't really there. Uh, so it was just lots of fresh air and, and um, rest. Huh. That was all you could look forward to. So I'm pretty sure the mother has TB. Okay. It's never specified. No. So anyway, um, Satsuki has to go to school. Um, she's 10, but May, only four, she stays at home and she plays in the garden. Uh, and there she meets two little creatures who look you know, across, like a cross between a rabbit and a fox and a cat. Um, and these are forest spirits. So chasing them leads her into the heart of the camphor tree, and there she meets the huge sleeping Totoro, the tree spirit. Uh, he looks like a nine-foot-tall version of the smaller spirits, but with some added bear and with these kind of weird, boxy human teeth. Um, to any sensible person, Totoro will be terrified, but Mei is delighted. Um, and her sister and her father, they do not see Totoro, uh, until a lot later in the film. Uh, later in the film, the two girls are waiting at the bus stop for their father one rainy evening, and Totoro comes and visits them again. Um, but uh, even though they are adapting to life in the country and to living next door to this enormous tree spirit, when the girls get a telegram from their mother's doctor, they suddenly realise how fragile their existence is. And after exhausting all other options, Sensuki turns to Totoro for help. And that is kind of that is the first two thirds of the movie, I think. Um, so f first time you've seen this film, am I right? I think it's my fourth time I've seen oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. First time for sure. Um, what did you think? I think in retrospect, this is the better film of the two that we're talking about. I really I think, <laughs> well, that's faint praise if ever I heard it. <laughs> I think that um, it's so much more focused. I mean, it's a very personal story, so it just has a very linear uh, feel to it. Um, so it's very focused. I I could follow this story. I could not follow <laughs> the boy and the heron very well. So. Um, yeah, I I liked it. It's um, I liked the characters, the the wood sprites. And I'm dying to see um, a remake or a sequel called Cocaine Totoro because I think that <laughs> now we're talking. I think that would be a film right there. Um, but he has this big bear-like creature, and he's you know he's. It's interesting because he's the you know the titular character, but you know he doesn't have any dialogue. Um, he's really not in the film a whole lot. 
Um, he's, he's in four scenes, I think, yeah, isn't, isn't he? It? I, yeah. mean, I think and it makes four appearances in the whole film. And yeah. He's basically demonstrating sleep apnea in the first scene. <laughs> And then waiting at a waiting for a bus. I love that. I love. There's a real, real sense of. Um, I like some of the values in this film. There's a real sense of public transportation in this film, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, yes. um, very good advice about um, clean living in terms of eating good vegetables and uh, living a healthy <laughs> lifestyle. So I love. I love some of the messages. And this is a. I think these are all sort of kids' films that you know, obviously adults can relate to as well. But um, I'm glad you mentioned that it's. A kids' film because I think you have to look at it with those eyes. Um, yeah, and kids get in trouble, and that's why this film works is because um, the May character just keeps running away. I think there are two or three pivotal scenes where it's basically let's go look for the little one. Yes, you know? um, and that you know that, I think we can all relate to that. So that makes it a very, very human story, even though you've got these bizarre creatures. And uh, this is where the um, you called them. I've, they were called. Soot mites or soot, soot sprites. Soot I think. sprites. I've heard, and, and they they call them a few different things early on in the film. But then we find out that the neighbor, who has these great powers or you know knows about the magic, um, she finally calls them soot sprites. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it was it was eye opening because I've seen bits and pieces of so many of his films, but um, I was glad to hear that you know you were a big fan of this film. Um, and it's I'm always amazed that it's 1988, and I'm also amazed that it's the Fanning Girls. Is that because they weren't that age when this film was made, were they? Did they go back no, and dub it, was, it later or something? I think I think they, they I think there was an original English dub okay. with uh, actors who are not very well known, and then I think um, it may possibly be Disney who then kind of got okay. distribution rights who did a starrier dub in about two thousand and three. I think okay. originally when the film was released, it was not a hit. Okay. Uh, it, it didn't really make money. Um, and I think it's only um, off the strength of merchandising and the cute animals yeah. that it gradually grew in reputation okay. um, and then kind of became a hit rather after the fact. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've already given away, you know, I've already told you what's in my hand. I love this film. Yeah. I'm, I'm biased. I've seen it several times. It delights me every time. It delighted me again watching it this time. Yeah. I, you know, I think, and I still think I said the same thing when we discussed it at the popcorn counter. Yeah. This is one of the best cinematic explorations of the world of very young children. Yeah. Like the world of the preschooler. Yep. It, you know, it, it's just, like, it, it really captures that kind of preschool play. Yep. Yep. She picks flowers from the garden and she puts them on her father's desk and she says, you be the flower shop. Yeah. Um, it's, um, you know, that's just the way that little children play. I remember playing like that. This, I took, I just take such joy watching like the animation yeah. of the children. Like they kind of, they run and they tumble and they fall over and they get up again. Yeah. You know, and the whole world is, is scary and exciting. Yeah. And, joyous and you know new a film is packed with all these wonderful details it's like there's just a single a simple shot of um water flowing down a stream Mm -hmm. um which just it really reminds me of you know like that simple joy of you standing on a little footbridge and and watching the water go underneath your feet yeah um a lot that the hedgerows and the shrubs the way that may gives her big sister like this little girl hug when she goes to see her at school i think it's it's tremendously well observed um i did read um that apparently um miyazaki based may on his own niece and i'm sure must have spent a long time watching how she moves and drawing her because it feels like a very well captured three or four year old child And, and again it's you know it's it's autobiographical insofar as as we said before the break, so Miyazaki moved to the country from Tokyo at a young age. Yep. You know, um, his mother had TB, spent many years in hospital. It's, you know, all those details 
are kind of autobiographical again. Yeah, something I like about this film is that um, it's it's really coherent in a way that Boy and the Heron is not, and yet it gets these moments of imagination or incoherence out of the fact that it's sort of told through a, a young person's eyes. So it gets the the playfulness of it. There's plenty of imagination in this film, and you know we're not really sure if the, any of these sprites really exist or whatnot, or if they're just the invention of a child's imagination. Um, but it, it holds really well together as a story because it's basically just about running away, getting lost, you know, exploring this world at the same time being tied down um, by the fact that there's, you know, this, this problem in the family about the mother's in, uh, sickness or her illness. Um, so I think it's, it's just, it's compact. It's, co- it's very coherent in that sense. It's not, there aren't these wild ramblings through dreams that make it harder to understand and, and less relatable. This is a very relatable film. Shall we? I, I I always wonder whether it's worth ringing the spoiler bell for a thirty-five-year-old film, but mm. we probably should. Some people haven't seen it. Should yeah, we ring can, the bell? Yeah, let's go. Go on. on. We'll ring. Ah, ring the bell. Wake up that Totoro dude. <laughs> so, uh, the first time I watched this film, very first time, I was a little bit surprised uh, that it didn't go all in and let the mother die. Because mm. um, you know, um, Disney were happy to kill Bambi's mother, weren't oh, they? Yeah. And yeah, I remember the first time round, kind of thinking, "Oh, they chickened out a little bit there." But I think the, the more times I have seen it, and you know, this time more than any time, I've um, really kind of keyed into the distress of the children at the possibility of the mother dying. Yeah. And I kind of realised you, you don't need to actually kill her to explore that emotional landscape of you know the fear of her death. You know, to them, it's a very, very real, vivid crisis. You know, she doesn't have to actually die for us to to see, you know, how emotional they get about it. Just getting the telegram, um, you know, that kind of is like the mother dies. You know, it seems so very real to them yeah. that, you know, I think it would be unfair, really, to hit the audience harder than that, personally. But I don't know, did you come away feeling that they chickened out? Well, I think they, they scare you enough, right, by getting the telegram and then they start racing to the hospital. You feel like, oh, she's definitely in bad shape, um, which is not the case at all. So it's a nice, it's sort of like pulling the rug out of your feet, under the, out of out from under the feet of the viewer a little bit. You're setting them up and then fooling them a little bit. So I, I kind of like that. Um He's he has darkness in these films, and I think he's got some great. I like his darkness in the sense that it's there's some creatures that seem scary, but they're actually not so scary. Or um, mm. yeah, you talked about the teeth and the even the warts on the old ladies. It's dark, um, but um, I, I I like his darkness because it's there, and yet um, it's not necessarily that frightening once you start to explore it. So I'm not surprised that he didn't. Um, that, you know, I'm not surprised that he decides not to off the mother, kill the mother. I'm not. I'm, I'm not even sure what she has for an illness. That was the other thing. I was also thinking: Is this a? Was she, did she have a mental breakdown? Is she having some sort of um, uh, mental health issues? Because it seems like it's a permanent stay to the point where you know she, they move right. They move closer to yeah. the hospital just to be closer to her. So. Um, not knowing what her her mental condition is, it's hard to say because you sort of have to set up a death. How she, you know, she she's not going to die of um, resting <laughs> in a sanitarium, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> if the tuberculosis is really bad, then sure. Or you know, if she dies by suicide, that would be tragic. But you know, if, it, oh if she's God, in an institution, yeah. that you know that you, that would be set up anyway. If that was an institution, so I'm glad you 
sort of explored it and came to this conclusion that there's tuberculosis involved because I did, I did not know why she was there. And then you see the next film and, oh, God, he has another mother who's in a hospital. And then the stepmother, <laughs> she's actually ill, too. She should probably be in a hospital or she's, you know, convalescing at home. It's all this sort of um, tragic ill mother stuff going on in these films. And uh, so I wasn't surprised. I think, I think his darkness is elsewhere. I think, like, being swallowed by a group of really aggressive frogs, that's scary to me. Um, and this film has things like that too. So he's always got darkness, um, but it's either absurd enough that it's not frightening or, um, it's all from this point of view of, if you explore it with like a child's wonder, you realize that what we consider dark and and fearsome might not be that at all, as long as we get to know it. Ah, yeah. Mm. Yep. Something it's an idea you've already touched on. So maybe, maybe you've already answered this in your mind. I was going to ask you, is Totoro real? in the world of this film? I don't think so. No, I think it's just because, remember, he, she, she's out wandering in the garden, May's out wandering in the garden, and, and similar to, again, Boy and the Heron, um, doesn't she go through this almost tunnel of shrubbery? Yeah, um, yeah. And I love the camphor tree because it's just, I had to look up camphor trees online because I couldn't imagine that they would be that big, but they apparently do get huge. Um, so he, she really goes into this other world. This is a classic thing of just going through a door or a window or something, going into this other world. So I think it is the imagination and, you know, the neighbors, the neighbor relates to that. And you get the idea that I think they call her granny, don't they? Yeah, granny. Um, they call her granny and it's like, she probably had these same imaginative journeys when she was a three and four year old, when she was living there too. So I, I just feel like, um, no, because also as much as I love the idea of a cat fox bus, um, I don't think that (laughs) exists either other than in the imaginations of the children. But that's, that's the great thing is I feel like, um, the 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 values or the themes of this film are fantastic. I mean, I love the the fact that um, they are waiting for a bus. It's just beautiful. You don't see that very often. And you know, they're waiting in a bus for a bus <laughs> in the rain. And then this this massive psychedelic cat comes up and picks them up. Totoro and Totoro shows the way. He gets on the bus the first time. I don't think they get on the bus the first time. But then when they really need it, the bus comes again later. The cat bus yeah. comes later and sort of ends the film with the cat bus too. Um, so I really I really like that. Um, so apparently when uh, Miyazaki met uh, Akira Kurosawa, um, Kurosawa's one big comment to him was, oh, I really love that cat bus. I wish I could do something like that oh, in the really? film, but it's difficult with live action. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the cat bus is a brilliant invention. It I, is. A little bit like with The Boy and the Heron, I think there are cues that make you suggest that Totoro is not real because he's yeah. associated with sleep, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, Yume yeah. is constantly kind of falling asleep before or after yeah. Totoro appears. Yep. So I I suspect in the world of the film, Totoro probably isn't real, but he's a, if he is a dream, he is a shared dream because Satsuki sees him just as well as May does. But they, one time they see him, I think Satsuki sees him too at the same time. They're dreaming at night because Totoro Mm. comes to the garden. There's this thing where Totoro is given them acorns or acorns everywhere in this film. And then Totoro is given them acorns to plant. Um, and grow a forest, which is, again, I love the sort of this environmentalist touch to it. Um, and the girls wake up and they see him. He's just kind of cruising around the garden at night, walking around. And um, it, it's it's as if they're dreaming that moment, too. I mean, I think there's always this 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 the, this assumption that if something's happening at night when they're supposed to be asleep, then, in fact, they actually are asleep and dreaming it. But then it doesn't... Um, 
the other sisters, it's Satsuki, right? Satsuki? Yeah, Satsuki. Satsuki. Um, she eventually sees uh, Totoro at the bus stop, I think. And that's when she finally realized, oh, and now I've seen Totoro. Um, yeah. But uh, so that a little confusing, but you're, as you're right, as you said, he's in there about four or five times in the whole film. And um, it's, it's set up so that, yes, absolutely. He could be um, a dream thing. Oh, there's this wonderful moment too, where it's almost marsupial. Like they, they climb onto his belly and then he flies them up to the top of the camp for tree to <laughs> <Yes>. show. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. That was great. So, I mean, there's, there's some trippy imagery in here, which is great. Cause I find a lot of, um, Miyazaki's stuff is actually, it feels kind of conservative in a way. Um, There's very, like the backgrounds are always very static and then you've got this movement, um, you know, animated movement going through these really static images. And I don't, I wouldn't say, I mean, obviously some of the images are just so trippy and adventurous that you think, okay, this is wild. But at the same time, I he never really explores anything too, too radical, I don't think. It's a, it's a strange combination of really conservative filmmaking, but at the same time, super imaginative filmmaking, I guess. I mean, I think both of these films um, uh, have this very distinct Japanese flavor, because yeah. I think they're both, especially Totoro, they are kind of about animism. Mm-hmm. They're about Shinto, oh. which is like, like the ancient religion of japan it's like the most prevalent religion in japan which all revolves around um spirits kind of these uh which are called kami this notion of that there are spirits in all things there are spirits in places there are spirits in objects spirits you know occupy or control the forces of nature spirits are all around us yeah um one of the very first things uh the children pass in totoro when they're in this van driving to their new house uh they pass a cat shrine um you know which is like you know a little shrine to uh you know a cat spirit yeah um you know and, and then you know immediately they pass that they're driving towards this huge camphor tree it's all about the kind of the spirits of the natural world it's yeah. about kind of living in harmony with the natural world i mean it features actual real tree hugging somebody actually physically <laughs> hugs a tree i mean you can't get clearer than that yeah exactly yeah <laughs> um i'm gonna ask you one other screenwritery type question yeah. i think i probably know what your answer will be but i'd be interested to hear if it's what i predict um that typical screenwriter question whose story do you think this is uh, i think it's may's i think it's yeah. may's story um yeah yeah she's the one they're all chasing in so many scenes and i think just by the virtue of it Feeling that imaginative and that dreamscapey, I think it's the the story of the of the May child. The well, she's as you said, three four years old. I don't know, but young person for sure. Who can imagine a, a cat bus? You know, yeah. I think it's definitely her story. I mean, her father's kind of distant. He sort of drops them off, and he's teaching at university, and and then Granny's sort of the secondary character. So you know, you could say it's a sister story between the two of them. But uh, I think May gets much more of the, of the screen time and. Like the whole, she gets the adventures, and that's why I'd say it was her story. Yeah, she she is the prime mover, isn't she? I think. Yeah, and there's this one. We were talking about the darkness, and I, I would come back to it because it's related to May. Is that I think the darkest part of the film, in some ways, is when they find this sandal. May has gone li- missing, mm. and they you know they're, they're looking for her everywhere. There are these search parties, and they unearth this sandal that they think is hers from a pond. Um, and I think again, that's sort of a. a a tip to the fact that it's kind of May's story because, you know, we're really concerned about her. Um, and that's a dark image. I mean, that's that's the kind uh, of darkness that I like that he does is that, you know, he's going to make you think for at least a second that 
May is gone. Yeah. Um, that she's died, that she's succumbed to her own adventure. Um, so I think that's the kind of darkness that I like in the film, and that sort of confirms for me that it's really May's story. She's the most important character. It's um, interesting you're kind of commenting about the dad being a little bit sort of emotionally unavailable. Yeah. What What is sweet, at least? I think if um, if this were a Western film, um, then the dad would, you know, almost certainly tell the girls, don't be so stupid, eat your vegetables. Yeah. You know, come in, it's getting cold outside, you know, uh, bring wood for the fire or whatever. Whereas um, in this film, you know, the dad says, oh, well, it must be the tree spirits. And, yeah. you know, thank you, tree spirits, for looking after us. Yeah. And, you know, he's, um, you know, he takes the girl's thoughts and concerns and, and interests seriously. He doesn't kind of poo-poo them or tell them they're dumb or yeah. change the subject or whatever. You know, I, sorry, he's, guys, he's, guys are good dad, yeah, yeah. you know, he's, yeah, he's, he's doing well. Yeah, and he seems pretty psyched to have his kids in a place where they can really just run wild and let their imaginations run wild as well. It's, it's like, yeah, it's a ideal childhood, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, now that we've talked about um, <laughs> uh, emotionally unavailable parents and uh, <laughs> ideal childhoods, uh, let's, let's play our favourite game. Oh, yeah. uh, let's play Who Am I? Who am I? So every episode we watch we watch two films yeah. and we kind of ask each other, well, can you see yourself in either of these films? Supposedly we go to the cinema to see ourselves. Yeah. Did you see yourself this week? Well, that's uh, I'm not that animated. <laughs> um, I guess I saw myself in the. I loved seeing myself in the self-inflating fish-eating potato puff sprites. I think that was, uh, <laughs> and I think they had a name. Were they the Wawas or something like that? The Warra Warra. I Warra think. Warra Warra. You've got it. You've got it. Well, the Warra Warras. I would be a Warra Warra. I think, and I hope I'm one that can spin through that big DNA spiral in the sky and 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 make it into the stars. But I'd probably be picked off by a pelican. <laughs> um, How about yourself? Easy one for me this week. I, yeah. um, because I know I've seen this film four or five times, oh, but yeah. I, I think I am May, basically. Oh. I, because, because I think every, everyone who views My Neighbor Totoro kind of you know, is May, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At least everybody watching the film has once been three years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the world that she lives in you know, is is a lot like a version of the the world that I remember from my own childhood. Where kind of you know, I picture my own childhood. It is a kind of endless summer, sort of playing in the dirt, making up games. Yeah, you're seeing the world from about eighteen inches above the ground, like you know, really observing that hidden world of of flowers and bugs and yeah. worms and tunnels under bushes. You know, I can I can vividly remember that. And also, she has a a six year age gap with her older sibling, which is just the same as me. Oh, really? So yeah, so I think I used to copy everything my older brother did. Aha. Uh, just the same way that May does in the film. That you know, Satsuki does something, and May immediately just does the same thing. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's sweet, but it's you know, it's funny because it's true. She, she is one of those universal characters that's really easy to relate to. And that's what I said. That's the, the big difference between the two films for me is just just better understanding, better relating to the Totoro story. Well, should we, should we, so I think we've already done half of this work. Yeah. But should we see whether we can draw the two films together? We'll do our synthesis. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. We can build it. We can get eaten by a pelican. <laughs> I think you know, these films, they're both very accomplished. I think they're both 
beautifully animated. I think I think they are both you know, fairly remarkable family films. Yep. They, they have a lot in common, though. Like you've said, Ooh. they both feature anthropomorphized fantasy animals. Mm-hmm. You know, they both have magical gateways to another world. Mm-hmm. They both have you know, kind of a version of a giant tower with a secret at the base. Yes. Yep. They both have cute little creatures that drift across the screen. Yep. They both have mothers in distress yep. and children struggling without them. You know, th- th- these films have a lot of common ground. They are. Yeah. I wrote in my notes they are chapters from the same book. Yeah, that's a very good point. We talked about motifs earlier and his, and his broad strokes. I think they are. That's what makes them feel so similar. For me, the 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 big similarity is. Um, it's sort of like magical thinking. Um, mm. And I say that because it seems like um, both films are about children using um, magic and imagination to get through different difficult times, right? They both ah. have, they both have the, the, I mean, they, they're so similar, right? They both have mothers who are ill and they have to move to a new place and explore a new world uh, while they're processing grief or while they're processing some sort of family trauma. Um, so I think that's it. And, and I love the idea of using your imagination to, to make your world better. Um, I think that the, the crick in it all for me is that I think sometimes animators go overboard and get too imaginative. And I think the big difference here is that <laughs> I think there's a lot more restraint in Totoro than there is in The Boy and the Heron. And I think I liked it more for, and I could follow it more um, because of that. Um, so with animation, it's almost like you've given yourself the permission structure to just put whatever the hell you want to on screen. (laughs) And in The Boy and the Heron, there's some wild stuff that's on screen and I love looking at crazy stuff, but for me, it has to be more coherent. Um, whereas the wild stuff that happens on screen in terms of like forests growing overnight in, you know, uh, in Totoro, um, or a cat bus or just. Totoro himself just being such an excellent character. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think I can I can handle. I can process it. Um, whereas a lot of the who was the the is it Kikiro's the the Fisher person and and yeah. savior. I mean, everything that happens, the story just got, fell away from me so quickly once that scene happens. It's sort of like. A, uh, Mahito's going. Mahito's going out of the castle for the first time. He passes through this great key, this gate. Uh, Kikuro picks him up and goes fishing with him. And then all of a sudden, we're with the architect and the stone, and the stone has part or powers. And then the Jenga tower of thirteen pieces has powers. <laughs> and then the parakeets have powers. I just got lost, and I yeah, think it, it was just, just gets out of hand. It's like it? too much imagination. And I hate saying that because we should be really imaginative as a species. <laughs> but um, animators have this tendency to maybe go a little bit too far, whereas. Totoro works because it's a contained story. It's really easy to understand. You're not going into world within world and within world. So it just, um, it makes it a stronger film as a result. So that's it's kind of how they're similar, but it also draws a huge distinction between the two. Ah, yep, yep. I I, I was thinking you know, about the few differences between these films. And I think the biggest one um, is kind of something we've already alluded to with in Totoro, the mother survives mm. yeah. uh, in the boy and the heron. Oh, she yeah. does not. Yeah, I, like the, the new film. It's just it's just so much more dour. It's kind of it's yeah. somber and serious. Mm-hmm. I I can't remember Mojito, the lead character in the boy and the heron, laughing at all. I can't can't remember him smiling at all. Yeah, I wrote that in my notes at one point. I'm writing in the dark. I wrote down the word mirthless. Ah, yeah. When I was watching that film, 
mirthless road. <laughs> My neighbour Totoro is like the film is like a big hug. It kind of yeah. You, know, you you leave the film like feeling like the world will look after you. That like, that there is a benign force somehow out there that you can call on for help. Yeah. It leaves you with the sense, yes, children will be protected. The world is not utter chaos. Yeah. Um, whereas the boy and the heron, you know, suggests basically the opposite. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of, it, it, <laughs> I, you know, the, the, the kind of the punchline to the boy and the heron, it tells us that, you know, our world has been made by a capricious God, some old grey uncle yeah. playing with shapes. Yeah. You know, it tells you death is inevitable. You know, it cannot be escaped. You know, and even though, um, you know, his mother, Hisako, she says, I, I am happy to return to my time and die in the fire because then I will be mother to you. It's a sweet idea, but, it, you know, it does, it's not an upbeat ending to the film. No. Basically, I, I came away <laughs> from The Boy and the Heron with the, the idea that pain is inevitable and meaningless. Yeah. History will repeat itself. You know, you can do your best with a new family, but there's no easy solutions. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think... You know, part of this will be to do with the time of life in which these films have been made during um, Miyazaki's career. But also, mm-hmm. like you said at the very beginning, Totoro is a film from the 80s. Yeah. You know, that well, it was a more optimistic time. You know, the late 80s, you know, the world was still our oyster. Whereas The Boy and the Heron, you know, it's a film of today. It's a film, you know, made in a world where bombs drop on children. Yeah. Be it in Ooh. the Ukraine or the Middle East or wherever. Yeah. You know, a, a world where actually, you know, there is not a great deal of, of the sense of justice or safety mm-hmm. or protection. Um, you know, it's, it's a film of our times, but our times are pretty blooming dour. Well, yeah, and if it took 10 years to make, then it suggests that the last 10 years have been fairly dour. <laughs> and they have been, haven't they? It's oh, a God. long time. Yeah. Um, I would, I got one question I want to pose to you, and it's sort of just about yeah. the animation itself. It seems like um, the characters, the lead characters especially, seem very, very white. And I don't know if this is because he's making films for international audiences in both of these films. Um, it's kind of unsettling because then other faces seem very, very Japanese. So it's not... It's got this international feel. There's one, I think there's only one scene in The Boy and the Heron where you see black characters and it's a ghostly scene. And they end up, they're sort of black, but then you look at them and they're skeletons inside of these black. Oh, yes, can... rowing those big boats. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it's just, it seems very odd to me. And then you couple that with hearing some weird, you know, like American accents. Um, and I don't know if he does that intentionally. What's, what's your take on that? Like, it, you don't see Japan like strictly Japanese faces. You see a lot of the main characters in both films seem very, very white to me. And then um, you see very other, you know, you, you do see like Japanese characters, but not in the lead roles necessarily. And maybe I'm totally wrong on this, but they just seem it seems a little bit whitewashed somehow. I um, I am no authority on this in any way. Yeah. I am kind of aware that Japan is still a much more kind of racially and culturally homogenous yeah, exactly. country. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it can be a not very welcoming country to not Japanese people. Um, yeah. I can only know, say this anecdotally and not as a rule. And, yeah. Uh, but um, I think there's a kind of convention within anime that, um, you know, because all of the people who are making the film are, you know, fairly uh, racially and culturally homogenous, yeah. then, you know, any character you draw in any way will be a Japanese person because that's all you see around you and that's all you see in the streets. So I think think everybody is intended to look Japanese. Um, So it's a kind of anime trope, I think, that some characters have, um, you know, big eyes and um, 
kind of quite Western looking features, but they're still intended to be Japanese. Okay. I think that's what it is. Yeah. But I'm very happy if somebody writes in and tells yeah. me I've got that completely wrong. Yeah, I'd love to know how we're supposed to read that because it is interesting to me. Um, and then I don't know where Christian Bale was coming from because he's, he's, he's what, he was an <laughs> airplane, I don't know, cockpit glass factory maker or something like that. Um, sounded very just Bostonian, rugged guy, and it was just <laughs> odd. It was really odd. So I mean, it's, it's interesting that you match these voices to these faces and, and you just... Everything was unexpected, I guess. It made it hard to find the terra firma there. And then the other thing I was going to ask you about was the ugliness of old people in his films. Because they always just, I mean, they're beyond wrinkled. They're, you know, they usually have warts and then their heads are much larger than their bodies. And he, it's almost ageist, it seems. And it to is. see him doing it at 83, he's still <laughs> making them look like this. <laughs> I think it must be the only way he can draw them. I suppose okay. it's funny, isn't it? Because yeah, it's um, it, it is not a flattering no. um, portrayal of elderly people. No. But it's, it's difficult to imagine the young people in the film ever becoming the elderly people that we see exactly, in the film. Yeah. They appear to be completely different species. <laughs> I, I'm guessing again, it's a kind of it's a sort of an accepted convention or a trope. Yeah, but it's peculiar, isn't uh, it? Yeah, I know. Yeah, to, to the Western eye, it looks a little bit peculiar. Okay. Uh, thank you thank you shed some light in it for for me anyway um i've i've been bursting to get to the next bit oh, of yeah. the podcast all week oh wow um uh and you will understand why in yeah, a minute i'm excited uh let's why don't we talk about what has also been playing yeah. at this theater And I've got to go first. I've been bursting to talk about this uh, because uh, what's also been playing at our theatre is uh, last April, uh, we bought some tickets which finally came round this week. Uh, We went to the Barbican in London to see the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, stage production of... My Neighbour Totoro. Oh! Uh, I, I, so I can't believe how incredibly well it's worked out. Oh. So we um, so we bought the tickets nine months ago, and then we've actually seen the show two days before recording the podcast. Wow. Um, so, so we went to see the live-action version of My Neighbour Totoro. That's amazing. Just perfect. Oh, amazing. And it's Royal Shakespeare Company. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, And and happily, yeah. uh, the live version is just great. Oh, wow. It's great. The, the children are played by adults. Yeah. Um. But uh, but they do a kind of you know, a great version of a ten and a four year old. Yep. Um, Totoro is played by an enormous puppet, oh. operated by six or eight people. Oh, that's awesome! Um, so you know it, it it is literally a nine foot tall puppet. Oh. You know he is life size. He's absolutely enormous. Oh. Very skillfully um, yeah. uh, animated by the puppeteers. Um, th- yeah, they have a sizable band. Uh, they're on stage in the branches of a tree at the back of the stage. I mean, it's beautifully staged. It's beautifully put on. But interestingly, um, the film is 88 minutes. Uh, the live version is two hours 20 Oof. plus a 20 minute in- interval. So wow. they have had to, had to add on nearly an extra hour of material My. to make it into like a full stage wow. uh, production. So it's interesting to see what they stretched out and what they did. Yeah. Um, so they've added some songs. Um, yeah, which is kind of fun enough. Okay, yep. so there are some songs. Uh, and there are f- like a few new scenes. There is a new scene where Canter, uh, who is the little boy yeah. who has a crush on Satsuki. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has like this uh, this scene with his dad, who doesn't appear in the film at all, um, where his dad is telling him how to talk to girls. <laughs> um, 
so that kind of like a few extra extra scenes that have just been completely invented uh granny has a scene with satsuki where she um she explains that she had a sister who died the whole uh, show really leans into this theme of death yeah. much harder than the film huh. um satsuki has like a tantrum uh telling may you know that their mother might die i mean they you know, they really kind of they play that out yeah. you know, very loud and clear um which means then that kind of come the end of the film, the end of the play, oh my goodness, listen to me, um, when it turns out that, you know, the mother has not died and she is all right and, you know, and, and the girls are watching from the tree yeah. as, as their mother and father are talking, you know, has a much you know, bigger emotional impact. It's a bigger relief because people have been talking about people dying, like, you know, for the last two hours, 15 minutes. Yeah. And now it turns out, oh, she didn't die. She's all right. And she comes home and uh, it's a, you know, a big relief. It's very sweetly adapted. It's, it's uh, it's a very good piece of work. They've done very well. Do you know who adapted it for the stage? Oh God, uh, I w- I should have put that in my notes. Yeah. Uh, it is an English guy, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so it's adapted by a Brit. I think I'm guessing the same team who did a stage adaptation of Spirited Away, okay, which is a big hit on the London stage about oh, five oh, years oh. ago or so. Oh wow! So this, I'm guessing, was the obvious next move. Um, but uh, brilliantly done. They do do the whole cat bus live on stage. Oh. There is a cat bus. It's an enormous inflatable. Oh. Uh, again, so you're skillfully done. That's terrific. Yeah, it's great. So, yeah, they've really, really gone for it. And it really, really works. It's a blast. What about the camphor tree? Do they try and reproduce that somehow? Well, the camphor tree is, is like is like the whole of the back end of the stage is just this one enormous tree perfect um, yeah. and they have the band kind of on all these platforms in the branches of uh, the tree oh that's great but then they also bring in a forest and they do build um a, a tree in the middle of the stage as well wow um so yeah so th- like they have put a lot of effort into staging it very, nice. very skillfully done wow excellent yeah i mean yeah, it's it's a it's a five-star hit they, they there's no missing oh, wow. it's um it's a great version how appropriate for the podcast <laughs> so i can't believe it worked excellent. out so well very well so, so I think that there must be a, a, a spirit of the podcast. Yeah, it's watching, watching uh, down upon us from atop that aerial. God, the Barbican was always a weird place to go, though. Is it, is it, <laughs> uh, just this block of uh, I don't know fascist architecture and all these little. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, brutalist, isn't it? It's, it's very I mean, brutal. My God, it, it really, really looks like um, the setting for a, an early eighties science fiction yeah, film. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, to the extent that uh, there are bits that we recognise from um, the Disney television series Andor. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, so, like, like, literally, they did film some 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 bits oh, of boy. like the the evil empire yeah. in the Barbican because oh, uh, yeah. it's just so appropriate. Why yes, it really not? does look like the base of the evil empire. <laughs> uh, what 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 was playing at your theatre this week? Um, Please I, tell me you saw a live version of the Boy and the Heron. Oh, oof. If I saw an advertisement for it, I'm not sure I would buy a ticket to the <laughs> Um, I saw something that I don't think anyone's going to have a chance to see, but if it comes up, try. Um, so uh, there's a gallery near here that has a pretty good film series, and they showed a main film called Hangdog. Huh. So it's shot right here in Portland um, by a husband and wife team. I think he directed and she wrote a script. Um, you know, super low budget. Looked pretty nice. I think they're more documentarians, and I think they've done some commercials too because they alluded to the fact that they um, spent less to make this film than they were paid to make a commercial for L.L. Bean, which is a sort of a department store, an outdoors mm. store here. Um, so it's it's really well done. They, they got some great performances, and... 
Portlanders love to see their city on screen, so it's it's a little bit of that postcard filmmaking where they've got all the the major sites and they've you know really exhausted all the the good views of the city. Um, but it's a nice little story about uh, a guy who's probably depressed, um, and his wife goes away, and he has to take care of their dog, and he loses the dog while oh. he's buying some cannabis to address his mental health issues, and uh, then he just spends three days looking for the dog in the city and has some, uh, what is that? Like a shaggy dog adventure, I guess is what it ultimately is. And, um, it's, it's well done. It's pretty well, it's really well acted. I think that makes a big difference because you can definitely see that it's low budget at times, but they did a nice job. It's one of the, the best films out of this area that I've seen in the last 10 years for sure. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it was, I, it's nice. They don't have a trailer on YouTube, which to me was bizarre. Yeah, that's mad. Um, and they are worried that it doesn't have much play outside of New England, but um, they're going to try and shop it a little bit. So I think it came out just in the last couple of months. So it's still sort of fresh. Um, and they're looking for some distribution somehow. But uh, I hope they do well with it because it definitely. Definitely could use some eyes on it, and I think uh, it's it's worth the while. It's again short film, probably ninety minutes, and uh, they did a good job. So it's called Hang Hang Dog. Yeah, Hang Dog. There was a really vibrant um, local film industry in your town, isn't there? Fairly, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the it's the only city in the state, and uh, a lot of people have moved here, especially through since COVID. Um, so we've got talent, but most of these people have to go other places to work on on jobs for you know short periods of time, and then come back here because they want to live here, they want to base themselves here. There's not a whole lot being made, but people are def- definitely trying stuff. And I, the thing about this area is it's a very cooperative and collaborative place. So we've got all these these breweries. We have probably 30 breweries right here, and a lot of them, they work together. Oh. So the whole idea is that you're not really just, you know, trying to compete against each other around here. You're definitely trying to collaborate because you're just, you can't do anything alone here because it's just too small. We don't have the resources. So there's a real collaborative spirit. So you know, you definitely see people working on a number of different films, and you, you sadly you start to see, see the same actors again and again. But they brought in some outside <laughs> acting, which was good. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a collaborative spirit, and there's just a lot. There are a lot of creative people here who want to just do stuff, even if it doesn't, you know, cost a lot of money to do it, or um, if they don't have big budgets, they're still going to do it. So I think that has uh, that has some some effect on the the way we make things here. But we're doing pretty well, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, frog in my throat. For, for a few months now, our listeners are getting sick and tired of hearing this cough throughout the podcast. I've had I've had emails about this. So, James, you need to get well. I don't know what it takes. Maybe go to a sanitarium somewhere. <laughs> go to a sanitarium. Yes, exactly. There, there is a chance I might die. Sit on a cloud and read a book. <laughs> uh, well, I hope maybe the cough will be better for next week. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Well, next week. Uh, next week yeah. we're talking about... Uh, the end, I think, aren't we? Uh, and then uh, <laughs> yeah. after that, uh, it's uh, American fiction. Yes. Uh, very exciting. We, we will be comparing to the Sidney Poitier film from 1961, A Raisin in the Sun, which I have never seen. Uh, so very excited to watch that. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Um, and then following that, it's episode 100 oh coming my up. God, 100. Uh, not long to go now. Wow. We, we, need, we need to plan something. We need to do something this, for episode 100. Oh, my God. We need to do some, something. Something special. 100 episodes. Thank you, listeners, for hanging with us for the first 100. 
Amazing. <laughs> Here's to many hundreds more. Yeah. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, we weren't serious about the many hundreds. Please don't go. Uh, <laughs> uh, join us next time at the Popcorn Counter and then for American Fiction. And uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Goodbye, everyone. See you soon.